there are many aspects, and this is the, the sociology, is now the sociological add-on. It's not only what suits power, therefore, what needs to be uh, transmitted to new generation in order for them to accept a narrative that suits the, the, the interest of political uh, powers. It is also, there are, there are also organizational aspects. Hello and welcome to Tom Meets Interesting People. This is the podcast where we interview interesting people from voice actors all the way up to nuclear engineers. And my guest today is certainly that meme of the paper that just never ends, particularly if you look at his CV. Um, Dr. Federico Faini. Yeah, I got it right. Yay! Leads the Center for Psychological and Sociological Sciences at the University of Northampton, mm. my old stomping grounds, and mm. takes pride in his commitment to the positive impact on communities that characterizes research and his teaching. And a lot of his research concerns the inclusion of migrant children and young people in education, youth subcultures, cultural studies, migrant friendly services, uh, conflict management. Uh, intercultural education, client-centered interpretation of healthcare and education, and the role of digital media in the diffusion of knowledge. Yeah. Currently working yeah. on his project, uh, most recent project, uh, Shared Memories for Dialogue and Children Hybrid Integration, so learning mm -hmm. dialogue as a way of upgrading policies to participation, mm -hmm. promote the inclusion of migrant children in the classroom, and he's also working on a project called SpaceX, which is transforming urban spaces in places of uh, democratic participation through, through mm -hmm. art, which yeah. is just so amazing. Um, welcome to the show. <laughs> um, how do you have the time for all of that? Yeah, well, let's say it sounds a lot, but lucky enough, there is a sort of common thread. There is the idea that, uh, in a few words, uh, that if uh, uh, people's engagement, participation in, uh, in society really is promoted, uh, good things can uh, um, emerge from that, and that applies to the integration of migrant children, uh, engaging with families, engaging with children, um, looking at what they bring in the classroom as a resource rather than, than a problem. Mm -hmm. And that the same applies to urban spaces and uh, you know, urban uh, environment cities rather than being observed as. Uh, is dangerous, uh, sometimes mysterious, surely scary uh, places seen as an opportunity because so many different people, uh, uh, you know, meet and cross their paths and promoting uh, promoting communication and uh, among them. I have to say, uh, with regard to SpaceX, and maybe we will talk about the pro the project uh, a bit later that. Uh, I'm engaging it. However, the leader is another colleague at my university, University of Northampton, uh, Andrew uh, Hewitt, and uh, working with Mel Jordan, who's a professor in Coventry. So just you know, to give credit to people who had the idea, and I I'm happy to work with them. But yeah, yeah give the due credit, yeah. Yeah, epic. Um, so is there anything, like, can you, can you look back and find something that sparked off your interest in getting people engaged in their local community? Yes, yeah, so my, uh, I don't want to sound not so interesting uh, sharing all my background, however, <laughs> is a bit, uh, is a bit uh, let's say, peculiar, because, uh, not in a negative way, it's a bit unique, uh, because my uh, background is in history. Mm -hmm. I'm an historian, my first... Uh, but my first degree, I have a few of them. Really. My first degree was in uh, Italian language and philosophy. And uh, from, from that, I moved to history, like what in England is called early modern history. So, you know, around Cromwell, this kind of, this kind of era. And, uh, and that, you know, studying history is, uh, is, to me, is mostly about being interesting in 
strangers that are us in the past yeah. who used to do weird things that were so normal at the at the at the time and to understand the, to understand what underpins their ways of thinking that is about a distance in time but then there are distances in space and that moved me to my second master degree in anthropology cultural anthropology so studying different society in different uh, areas of the world and also and also studying how different cultures interact uh, in our cities for instance in our because like it or not what is not going to change is that uh, our environment our everyday experiences uh, are and will be uh, multi intercultural experiences like it or not mm-hmm. it, it can and that is a political position and i don't want to talk, discuss about it but this is uh, this is a fact a yeah. social fact so okay uh, intermulticultural environment and this is where the interest uh, to to research and why not promote based on you know evidence from research dialogue interactions engagement with the idea that uh, the the more uh, people have the opportunity to meet uh, through dialogue uh, the more the possibility of creating new interesting positive things emerge for instance think about in nature okay if you think waterfalls the the higher is the jump is the fall the more is the energy the more diversity when they meet the more the energy the energy produced so using this met- metaphor that was my main motivation the idea that uh, you know knowing about uh, diversity and interacting with diversity i think can produce uh, produce uh, new things create new things yeah uh, and it also sounds like there with with diversity uh, as you obviously saying the more diversity we have the better our communities can be and it also mm-hmm. sounds like there's a lot that we can learn from history and bring into modern sociological studies am i right in going down that little rabbit hole yeah well i wouldn't uh, say that uh, rabbit hole because after all history so history was invented let's say as a way to celebrate uh, people in power okay so let's say a king uh, somewhere in the middle east in mesopotamia back 3000 years ago asked people to write the history of his family of his king to celebrate to justify also justify the immense power they were they could benefit from and um, but history then in history history changes in history moved of course towards a more critical assessment of the past and that critical assessment of the past is pivotal to i wouldn't say learning uh, uh, ist- learning lessons from history in the sense that we can apply straight away what happened 100 250 years ago to our current issues i wouldn't say that however however is like when you when you listen to someone sharing their experiences maybe they're not your experiences but you can as intelligent human being you can distill some aspect of their experiences that then you can apply recontextualizing placing it in your own situation and that's the same way that uh, i would I, i i approach history so not saying that uh, uh, how uh, the, the, let's say the balance between powers in 1914 can be used as a, to understand the balance between powers today no However, there are aspects of it that with some work of contextualization, so, so taking, bringing it into the contemporary situation can help. Yeah. yeah. All right. Fair dues. Because um, I want to pick up on something that you said there right at the very beginning. Um, history is kind of a way to kind of project power. And a, a sort of somewhat of an analysis that I'm seeing very recently as well is how the history i don't know if this is that in in your in your area but how the history of ireland and the relationship between the united kingdom and ireland um is portrayed very differently on either side of the, the, the uh, 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 on either side of the countries um for instance i remember my history classes and there was nothing critical about britain or the british empire 
And whereas obviously a history class in Ireland would be incredibly critical. So you've got any sort of comments on how we sort of teach history, uh, either in our schools or just in our society in general? That's the, 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 the example that, that, you, that, that, that you use, the, the, the history of Ireland, the relationship with Ireland, the United Kingdom is quite close to me because my partner, she's a London Irish. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, discussing with her, she could see the difference the different uh, uh, narratives that around the, the relationship between the two, the two uh, countries, in particular in the 20th century from 1916 on uh, and so on. And uh, there are many aspects, and this is the, the sociology, it's now the sociological add-on. It's not only what suits power, therefore what needs to be uh, transmitted to new generation in order for them to accept a narrative that suits the, the, the interest of political uh, powers. It is also, there are, there are also organizational aspects, for instance, you know, curricula. Curricula are almost life forms in the sense that they are there and they're so difficult to change, so difficult to, to, so difficult to challenge. Uh, because they have their own existence, and for the individual teachers and teach and um, educational leader, it is so. It is a so slow process to change curricula, regardless of the individual intentions or or or, or good or good intentions. And then, of course, a classroom a complex environment. You can also uh, challenge the uh, inherited uh, historical knowledge, but then you can have just theoretical example, but connection with that. parents being upset about it some parents some other parents asking uh, on the contrary you to challenge the history on other subject curriculum so it's, it's very difficult you see the the social implication of uh, a critical transformative approach in education are huge and that explains why education at the same time it is always um always engaging in transformation and, and we revise the curriculum, the way of teaching and we change it. But at the same time, that change is so difficult and it's so slow to actually, to actually happen because of these different, different social variables that kind of cross clash, interact and so on. Is there anything that as just like lay people we could sort of do to just help move this along and help that people kind of know sort of what history is kind of all about and what is the objective critical truth and what is just being used for the sake of projecting power? Yes, uh, I have, uh, well, I'm a historian because I have a degree in history. I'm not a professional historian, at least not anymore because I, my research is in different, different subjects and there are colleagues in history you know, department and uh, and uh, and group. My university, University of Northampton, who could offer a more thorough and convincing uh, apology of history, so explanation yeah. of uh, why is history important. First thing is that I don't believe that you or anyone else is a layman. We are all, all historian. We have our histories, and we make sense of our experiences by putting them in a context. So. That happened to me also because there was this situation going on that can be a micro situation involving families and friends, but also there can be you know, more, more social variable, economic situation, and then situation with employment and so on. So we are all historians in a way. What is the difference? You were asking about making the difference between you know, historical truth and, and the rest. Is that an historian follow? And that's the same for a sociologist. It is the same for a physicist. It is the same for an architect. Scientists follow a method. So yeah. a method are a set of rules and habits as well, ways of working that allows me to say, look, this is what I believe is the truth. Okay. And I claim that this is the truth because I follow a series of rules, and what is the point of such rules, regardless of the field? Yeah. The rules create a barrier, a separation between my own preferences, beliefs, 
ideas, hopes, culture, and the object of my observation. We can see them as a sort of spectacles, those rules, that stop my personal, subjective, individual preferences and, and fancies. They stop allowing me then to approach the object in the most, uh, the object of my investigation in the most bias-free way. So the what is, when you can, to uh, finally answer the question, distinguish a good uh, professional uh, scientific uh, historical account from the stories that we all say every day. Yeah. It, it is that that professional account was generated uh, by the um, at the intersection of the creativity, intelligence, knowledge of the of the historian and the methodology that kind of filtered out any possible subjectivity, preference, ideology, you know, beliefs, and so on. Mm-hmm. And of course, you use that uh, method in your work. And the last mm-hmm. time we emailed, you told me all about the concept of an enabling environment which is this yeah. sort of triangulation between the child, the adult, and the environment. And you worked mm-hmm. on that with Dr. Angela Scullin. Yeah. So can you introduce us to it and tell us a little bit more about it? We are working on developing the concept of uh, uh, enabling environment slash environment that enables, and I will explain a few words what the difference is about, uh, with regard to early years education, early child education. However, we believe it could be applied to any other situation. But in a few words, is almost a tradition now in early years education, education, the idea that it is very good for children if the environment, the actual place where they learn, let's say, when uh, in schools is um, enabling, is an environment that promotes their learning, okay, that promotes a good experience at school. So you arrange the space in a way compatible with resources, finance, and you see how complex is always the situation. It's not only the the will and the knowledge of the teacher, but also resources and so on. Anyway, you enable that environment in a way that the child can uh, have the best learning experience, okay? Yeah. What is the problem uh, uh, with the idea of enabling environment that myself and Dr. Angela Scollins are kind of investigated is that if we think about it, it's always the adult or the adults who think on behalf of the child, for the child, what is the best environment for child's learning and development. Mm-hmm. But where is the space for the voice of the child, for the preference of the child? So what is then an environment that enable as opposed, but not really as opposed, as an alternative to the enabling environment. The environment that enable uh, is an environment that facilitates, promotes children's, even young children's active engagement and cooperation in creating their learning spaces. Okay. Yep. It's not against the adults, it's with the adults. And why? And so, what is the nature of an environment that enables facilitating children's active engagement is the aim. But what is the nature that more than a physical space is a space of interaction, of communication, and the physical, the arrangement of the physical space is a consequence of of that. It's not a precondition. Great space to learn, children learn. Children work with adults, and the physical space is the outcome of that social space of communication. And that connects to my interest that you rightly you know, introduced about engaging communication and uh, so on. So, yeah. So I, I must admit, like, this is already challenging my own um, conceptions because I work in education as well. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I do tutoring, most of my tutoring is online. So my mm-hmm. environment's obviously in a virtual space. But I have noticed when I've worked in schools, yeah, the kids don't, really have much of a say on how their space is laid out it's more just presented to them isn't it yeah absolutely but look so that uh, i can introduce uh, the latest large-scale project i was involved uh, in so child up and Mm -hmm. it's about the hybrid integration so we part of the so the project is about creating opportunity for migrant children and their family to have a voice to be uh, to be actively engaged 
in, uh, in, you know, in the educational experience in school's life. But instrumental to the research, uh, because any intervention should be based on data, of course, and at least this is the sociologist's perspective, we uh, deliver a massive survey questionnaires across seven European countries asking children Migrant, no, my, migrant background, no, migrant background, children, parents, teacher, about some aspects of you know, the, the learning experience and exactly the things that uh, emerge in the most evident uh, ways that children were complaining, suffering from the impossibility, so they could not have a, a voice have a single word in how the learning environment was organized. What you have observed, actually, and maybe it's interesting for yourself as well, is what children have observed, but not only in, uh, in England, across several European countries, from Poland to the, to the east, uh, to Finland in the north, to Italy in the south, to, to us in the west. Yeah. It was quite interesting. And, and, and they suffer from it. I wouldn't say suffer like, they suffer excruciating pain, but <laughs> that makes their educational experience less enjoyable. The fact that they have to study, learn, and interact and play in environments that uh, do not uh, uh, facilitate, you know, their, their engagement. Is there, across all the European countries, is there like a set of, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, specifications uh criteria that all the children seem to like or is it very much dependent on the culture and the country the culture of education which is a, one aspect of the many aspects of a culture and uh, is different from country to country and uh, of course different history different uh, different history however if there is something that children uh, appreciate and that's also not only across country, but also across uh, age groups from primary to secondary school, because the research involved children from four to, to, to 18, really. And uh, it is the possibility, the possibility to uh, play an active uh, role, an active part in their own education. So what children like is the possibility that sometimes happens, sometimes not according to what they say and to our observation, because we spend thousands of hours in the classroom to observe teaching uh, practices, is yeah. when they can bring their own experiences, their own knowledge into the classroom and um, feeling valued for uh, the role of authors of knowledge. So children are willing to... Of course, this is a generic statement and there are individual cases, but sociology yeah. works on more general dimensions. Children are, are, are not against learning from adults, yeah. but it is much, much better for them and, and their learning works better if at the same time they acknowledge as authors of valid, of valid knowledge when they can bring their own knowledge. For instance, give you just an example. Uh, the uh, idea that some uh, teachers in London, actually, in the UK, had on a Monday morning to let children share their experiences over the weekend and valuing them, not just, you know, listening in a tokenistic way and then forget about it, maybe building activities. So child uh, uh, went uh, or took part in a, a family event based on uh, his or her cultural background, bringing that and developing that uh, story into a topic for a classroom discussion, that was absolutely powerful. Children loved it, children learned, and children were in a much more positive, um, had a much more positive attitude towards learning other subjects for the whole day and week. That's, this is a very good practice that the project is, you know, is about to um, transform in a policy recommendation for schools in Europe. So it sounds like sort of um, you turn the classroom kind of into a, a community where it's not just the teacher saying, here's what the space is like, here's what we're going to do. It's everyone kind of coming together in a form of democracy almost and mm. making the space work for them and also making the content of the lessons work for them. 
Yeah, I, I think I think that uh, again, as a sociologist, we need to be realistic. So that there are curricula that needs to be, in a way, I mean, getting rid of curricula is something that in the seventies was becoming more and more popular. Is not something that can happen now. Yeah. The uh, culture of education and policies uh, they took a completely different direction. So of course, uh, there are curriculum that needs to be fulfilled in a way. But the point is not going against the curricula, is how, how you uh, fulfill the expectation, the, out, the learning out, outcomes of the curricula. Are we sure that children's lives, their experiences outside of the classroom are a danger for their learning and should be kept out of the classroom and children in the classroom just listen and uh, take notes and answer questions when asked? Or maybe if we see, uh, if we look at children's experiences as a resource for the teacher to promote learning and then achieving the uh, expected learning outcomes of the curricula. So shall we, shall we look at children's experiences as something positive, as an asset, ra rather than a, something dangerous to be kept out of the classroom? That can be an ideological point of view, maybe. However, the research child up uh, as many other researches going and observe, observing what happens in the classroom suggests that indeed is not ideological, but can be a different way of working with children. I'm really interested in your research uh, because everything that, because um, it seems that spaces and sort of changing the way we think about spaces is definitely one of those recurring themes. Mm -hmm. And in the intro, I also mentioned SpaceX uh, with Andrew mm -hmm. Hewitt. Um, and this is, uh, I believe, transforming urban spaces, um, sort of, uh, kind of through democratic participation through public art. And I want to learn more about this. So can you, can you tell me all about it and how does it work? Yes. So SpaceX is, uh, we can think, well, I think of SpaceX as, uh, you know, like in physics, uh, um, a catalyst, a catalyst is something that. Uh, attracts energy from all angles, okay? And yeah. SpaceX, I think, is the same. So it's a project that aims to connect different knowledge, expertises, and I'm talking about 27 different partners in nine European countries, plus the partner country of Palestine, and uh, combining, putting, uh, promoting the getting together of these experiences and, and knowledges to do what? Uh, to investigate how spaces, okay, can uh, be uh, improved, let's say, uh, implemented, made better to facilitate, you know, communication, living together, and of course, art, you know, uh, and uh, spatial practices in art are a core a core uh, resource, uh, key to transform urban uh, spaces, uh, transforming them in a space of uh, public exchange, of communication. Again, is a completely different field, a completely different, uh, uh, you know, disciplinary background, but it is so similar to me to what uh, I've been doing with children in the last 10, 15 years. It's about promoting dialogue communication, exchange, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and the concept of space, and that I, and that connects, links back to the uh, environment that enable, can be a physical space, okay? SpaceX works with the idea that there are physical space, but overlapping with them, merging with them are social spaces. So there are, it's a double concept of space. It's a physical space, but it's also a social space, okay? And those, Two dimensions cannot be separated, okay? We, and, uh, and this is positive because uh, it allows to um, promote ideas like spaces that changing the physical space can change in a positive way the social space and changing the social space can change in a positive way the physical space. And this is what SpaceX is about. Of course, it's much more complex. There are so many different strategies in place to. Uh, um, you know, to achieve the aims of the project, uh, and maybe Andrew in, in the future could be a good, you know, a good host to you to explain it better. But this is in a, in a nutshell. 
yeah and there's only so much you can say in like sort of like yeah. a, an hour podcast yeah. um yeah but um if you had the budget let's just let's just let's just uh let our imaginations run just for a minute mm -hmm. if you had the budget um and you had a town center space mm -hmm. what would you budget is unlimited <laughs> what would you like to see what would you want to be put in to that space okay so you know we can i have also a few ideas i'm not based in i'm based in northampton the university of northampton is my employer and i work and do research there but i don't live in northampton but i'm happy to use northampton i to if that can yeah whichever see. one you find yeah, okay, let, most comfortable yeah let, let's uh, let because there are differences at least at national level i i I tell you something very interesting. For instance, coastal towns and cities, coastal towns in Italy are the most um, thriving uh, and lively and uh, exciting places to be. Whilst in England, most coastal towns <laughs> are the most deprived and in need of, uh, you know, work areas. It's, yeah. it's so interesting. It's completely, it's completely different. However, let's pretend, let's pretend, uh, uh, let's imagine a town, a mid-sized town. To me, the first thing the first thing is to make sure that the centers are full of people who work, who do their shopping, who live, sleep, eat there. They're, I mean, the worst thing, in my opinion, for a urban center, for a town center, for a high street, are empty shops, mm -hmm. no rent, rent opportunities, and uh, and and that's that's the worst, uh, the worst thing that can happen, and, and we can see it really. So we need windows, you know, and uh, shop windows full of products, and uh, we need people to walk the street to circulate. We need bars, cafes, restaurants. Uh, so I would invest in uh, facilitating uh, businesses to 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 um, no, to, to 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 go back really to return to the high street. But then, of course, people walking. And what about cars? So facilitate probably. Public transport is nothing new, really. They, you know, park and ride schemes, uh, and but public transport should be dense, continuing, and I would say twenty-four hours because public transport that uh, um, goes to bed at seven p.m. does not really help. Uh, does not really help uh, um, town center to drive. So investing in bringing businesses back, public transport, uh, and all way to facilitate taxes. What University of Northampton uh, is trying to do, Uni university campus, maybe supporting university to open a campus or, or part of a campus close to the town center to favor the influx of students. And, uh, and uh, what was amazing in English uh, urban landscape, and maybe now is, is a big change, uh, this mix of different, you know, um, Economic, social economic statuses and conditioning cultures very close to one another. Okay, so yeah. bringing not only business but also people back into the center. And um, and I really believe that uh, that was something that you know scholars and uh, people who work in arranging urban spaces, urbanists were not sure about in the 60s, 70s, 80s, but now it's back. If the the center thrives. The, you know, the outskirts, the region tribes. Yeah. And the idea of uh, affluent uh, suburbs and uh, surrounding a sort of uh, hole, uh, a nothingness around, like this kind of candies with the, the hole in the middle, it does not work uh, anymore. A town center made of museums, uh, made of uh, beautiful buildings, uh, beautiful churches with not, people, uh, with not people using it, except from tourists. And public offices, and uh, sooner or later, uh, will uh, yeah, will get worse and worse and worse and yeah. worse, and, and and you know, like the sociological aspect, uh, and uh, if you park a car and then uh, and then uh, if you break the car's windows and let it park there for uh, months, sooner or later, another car will have the the windows broken and so on because. This is, you know, let's say in a very brutal way that ugliness brings ugliness. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Emptiness brings emptiness. And the opposite is true, good news. So that's what, what, what I would do. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. 
No, no, you go and, ahead. And also would make sure to work with you know competent and you know creative, exciting, progressive people with me because yeah. as SpaceX demonstrate as well as Child Up uh, and um, meaningful, uh, impactful research uh, is a team effort. Really, the idea yeah. of the individual researcher. Uh, who does everything on his or her own, it does not work anymore. Too mm. much complexity around. Yeah. And you also mentioned in there sort of like facilitating um, everything that the town centre needs to thrive. And I live in Milton Keynes. Uh, I don't know how well you know MK. Um, and what I've noticed, and this is obviously just my own perspective and my own, my own observations, is that with our town centre, uh, we've basically it's just one giant building. And they've mm-hmm. made the brand new car park, which everyone parks to. And it's become this kind of like funnel, if you mm-hmm. will. So people will start at one end and they'll funnel through the town center um, or the city center at this point. Because we've got city status. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so that's great for all the shops that are in the city center and in the city center building and then round to Midsummer Place because it kind of acts like a funnel. But all of the shops that are kind of like on Lloyd's Court, and then you've got, I can't remember the name of the boulevard, and then you've got by the library. They all get ignored by it because all the shoppers are funneled mm-hmm. um, that way. So do you see a similar kind of thing where people are just funneled in a certain direction? Yeah, well, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, I wouldn't say typical, but quite common, quite common phenomenon that happens in city. How, how you arrange roads, you know, that makes a difference for the city. It's not just... Uh, uh, you really, you really condition people's uh, behavior by making some choices much easier than than other. And yeah. of course, uh, if shops are a bit overlooked because uh, they are not an easy option in terms of, and then they will not do that well. They, you might find, you know, the uh, empty, you know, windows that uh, puts people off. People will go less and less. It's a sort of vicious circle that is very difficult. Is, is very difficult to, to revert back to a positive. Again, uh, uh, of course, Milton Keynes is a very peculiar city. It, yeah. was, uh, is, it was a very, and it's still in a way, a very ambitious you know, project. And uh, therefore, I could not give, of course, a recipe for Milton Keynes specifically, and I could do it now anyway. Uh, uh, however, the general approach, I think, should be to facilitate and people... Uh, having access to to a to an area and that would revitalize the area for sure surely you need i think that one needs to support investment so that there is a way that you know local authority funding you know is can facilitate that i would you know you can work with rates you can work with contributing to the rent something okay yeah. and uh, yeah that's the only thing because uh, you 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 really I think what you're saying and you hit the nail on the head. If 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 uh, uh, it's not easy or it's not even obvious, and uh, if getting to a place is not easy or or obvious is not presented, people will not go. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and also, but that's for another podcast. There is the not new not so new anymore variable of you know e-commerce as it was. It used to be called e-commerce, online shopping. is uh, That's a massive uh, variable with impact on the urban landscape. But that's for another uh, podcast in the future. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I'd love to sort of like reconnect with you at some point in the future and take this onto video. Yeah. And we literally will just go around like sort of a town center, whatever, and just yeah. point at things. Because uh, I'm very good yeah, at pointing at it, things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, we could organize that there are other colleagues and people are very, very interesting people with a lot of specific knowledge in terms of yeah. you know, urban diversity of Northampton in particular is very, is very rich in this kind of expertise. Yeah. And someone who was very nearly my dissertation supervisor in the psychology department, Dr. Kimberly Hill, I think she's doing a lot of research with how um, older people interact with their environment as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I assume you already know, um, yeah. you know, everyone. <laughs> no, no, I, I know I, I know Kimberly because um, the Center for Psychological and Social Sciences, which I'm coordinating, she's one of the research leaders of the center. So I yeah. know her very well and well, I know her research very well. And yes, that could be yeah, that could be uh, yeah. something to develop. 
yeah, let's put that let's put that in the let's put that in the ideas folder and um let's see where that goes. Yeah. Um now of course you've also um in in our in our emails you said that uh, there were some really interesting sociological reflections that could be done around both football and music. Now I know mm-hmm. nothing about football, um, but we have talked about music on this podcast before, particularly in episode three of, of season one. And the Josh Frost described it as his form of expression and his way to communicate what he's going through mm-hmm. with other people. So, what's your reflections on music and and on football? Yeah. So, how many podcasts do we have? <laughs> um, well, of this, um, you'll, you'll be no, 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 how many podcasts? Because I would need a couple of episodes, I think. However, first of all, first of all, I have to say I'm a bit envious of people who can produce music so they can express their yeah. feelings through music. Because, uh, yeah, I, I would love to be able, like, I can play somehow, but I cannot express any any uh, feeling of self frustration for not being able to play really yeah. and uh, yes of course music music has a is a, a different dimension to it there is from the musician perspective is a way to express uh, to express those things there was the french uh, writer and stendhal who said once that novel writing is a way to express the things that you know we can express with words and maybe music can be seen as uh, as the same but that's the musician perspective but then there is the perspective of you know the listener and uh, we can be the same so kind of borrowing and uh, taking music in uh, transforming music music when it kind of mixes with your own emotions feelings experiences and then being supported by music in expressing what you could not do otherwise. But also there is a social dimension, because this is the individual listener uh, dimension, but the social dimension, the music becomes popular music, becomes a cultural phenomenon, one of the most important in the 20th century, because of course music brings with it style, you know, dresses, and, uh, you know, those specific languages specific ways of being together and the group identities, uh, you know, this very well-studied subculture. So music becomes a sociocultural phenomenon. But then music is also an industry. And there is, you know, the, the economic and financial aspects and uh, how business look at music, you know, is the economic aspect, which can have interests that are opposed to the one of the musician as uh, know to express his him or herself, that can be opposed to the business interest in producing something that can be consumed by as many people as possible. But then that, uh, uh, let's say, consumeristic approach clashes with young people who see uh, music as a catalyst of you know, identity. And there is this kind of continuing criticism uh, continuing clash from a cultural point of view is so complex. All in all, what is music is a powerful engine, in my opinion, in Mm. our society that keeps things going, contributes to keep society in the sense of public discourse, uh, uh, communication going. It's one of the many. There is music, there are other forms of arts, uh, but music is a great great way, is a great asset that people use to communicate, exchange, interact uh, and this is a very important aspect of music as mm-hmm. of you. and football is more or less the same really it's another powerful engine that keeps society that keeps society contributes to keep society moving and when i say society moving as a sociologist i mean communication going is very powerful and i was uh, and uh, because i follow west Bromwich Albion here in england so i'm a- active I, I, I'm somehow active in football blogs, and yeah. uh, and this is not about politics. As this is does not include any value judgment on the royal family. Yeah. You should have seen how many people were upset because fixtures were postponed last weekend. The, mm-hmm. You know, the English football uh, league chose to postpone fixtures uh, past last weekend, but they were not 
upset because they didn't care about the queen or their family or not at all. Maybe some, yes, but older on the other end, care a lot. But it was, for many people, what transpired was missing these two hours and surrounding the time of getting together in front of a TV or in, on the stands, discussing, talking. The weekend became empty in a way. Yeah. And that shows what the man suggested somehow, maybe I'm right, saying that football as music is a powerful engine that keeps communication interaction going. And it's that shared experience as well, isn't it? The kind of we're both ex- experiencing the same thing at the same time. That's, that's absolutely true. You see, your studies are really emerging. Powerful. <laughs> it's true. Look, we have, uh, I mean, in the, in, in the old times or in other cultures uh, where they're not industrialized, people share so many things. They more or less do the same things. They lead the same life. They get married at the same age. They, you know, they they do very similar jobs because in our society, our lives, even to siblings, are so different. We make different choices. We have more opportunities to choose, different jobs, different education. Sometimes what is really needed, it is what you were saying, very rightly so, and I do agree, is to have something in common to talk about, okay? And this is another function of music, another function of football, another function of you know, people can be critical of this kind of reality show and uh, very silly shows that were this kind of people without any talent or skill who become famous just because they show themselves on TV. Yes, this is true. But it's also true that those silly shows, they offer people something yeah. in common. I can assume waiting for a bus from Halesoven to Birmingham that the people on my, have watched West Bromwich Albion or uh, Love Island or so the, and this is so needed you, you know I think you agree with me it's not just silly at all it's not silly yeah. at all actually it is so needed in a society where otherwise we kind of do so many different things that would be impossible to have something to talk about and then from that something you can build something more profound in a way mm-hmm. but this is the so needed starting point yeah and I, I think this is something that I was trying to say, and I was struggling to find the words in the final year of my undergrad, is for, not just for psychologists, but for sociologists as well, my undergrad was in psychology, um, those shared experiences are some of the most powerful tools that we have, whether that be for Love Island, which I love, I'm a huge fan of Love Island, um, I, th- it has issues, obviously, but that's a whole different, a whole course, different topic, yeah. where I could say, Oh, uh, to my friend, oh, did you see what happened with Davide and Ekinsu? Or I can't even remember who else was on there this year. Uh, I just remember Davide and Ekinsu because they're hilarious. Yeah. Um, and they won, I think. Yeah, they won. It's like, yes. Um, so I have that shared experience straight away. But also something that I found in my, in my dissertation was that a shared experience can also help in a therapeutic environment in which I could say here is a piece of media or here is something that I've experienced and this is the exact emotion that I'm feeling. And you can use that as a sort of catalyst for further intervention, further uh, counselling support and make the session a lot more helpful for both sides. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, just uh, to follow your example of um, Love Island, I have to confess it's the first year I I watched a few episodes because of being kind of, uh, yes, we were enticed by some relative and friends. And look at David and Akinsu, you can uh, start from there, really. And then you you have, for instance, the intercultural dimension. I think one Italian background, one Turkish background. You can, uh, and, and then you can... From that simple, have you seen? Then you can develop, oh, look, like being an Italian, he was you know, loud or he was so, you know, chilled or, and she was like, you see? And then from that, you can start about the relationship between the different couples and people. And that's already, you know, at this hypothetical bus station, a little sociological discussion. So it's a kind, this is the strategy they use to, and without being aware of, of, of it, we, talking about Love Island, we are, you know, doing much, much more than, than, than that. Yeah, the catalyst, catalyst is, is the right word. And yeah. that happens in, let's say, more complex environment, therapeutic 
the environment or can happen in any of the social context. And it's also great for communicating what sociology is about, communicating what psychology is about, because yeah. we can relate to these examples. And I saw one psychologist used the moment, um, I think it was Luca got um, somebody's name wrong. And that was a great opportunity for that that's, uh, psychologist to talk about relationship counselling mm -hmm. and talk about things that happen in relationships and obviously also promote her work because we all want to just promote our work, don't we? This episode, obviously, we, we, we're getting very close to the end now and I still want to do the questionnaire. Um, oh, this, no. uh, <laughs> I know, you'll love it, you'll love it. Uh, this episode's obviously going to attract a lot of students who are interested in sociology, perhaps also interested in education and early years care as well. And we're also super, super close to the start of the academic year, particularly when this episode goes out. So what advice would you give to new undergrads starting this year? So um, I think that applies to all programs and courses in sociology only. I... As a student, back in the day, a long time ago, it's not, well, a few years ago, and an undergraduate student, I made the mistake the first year or two to think, you know, well, yes, I will be attending, but, and then I was working in a post office. So I said, yeah, I don't need to attend because then I can do my reading. I read a lot at home and on my own. If you can, do attend. Do yeah. attend all seminars, lectures, not time to have a specific way of teaching where seminars and lectures are combined, mixed with online. But anyway, whatever the university or the program do, first suggestion, do attend from the beginning is great. You learn more, you have to study less in a way, and you network with peers. And because it is so important to have the possibility to rely on someone because we can heal or we have uh, to go back home to see family for some need. Uh, and having someone you know, they're a friend of, and uh, so you can ask you know, notes, uh, what the lecturer said. But most of all, is for yourself. You learn better, quicker, yeah. and in a less stressful way if you do attend. Because there is a problem with attendance. This is well known. Attendance is yeah. compulsory in theory, but then do attend. Do, particularly now that you are back face-to-face -face fully, for a while now, do attend. Second thing is that I don't want to sound like a boring lecturer, but really, don't leave your reading for the months or week or sometimes days. Some students have been naughty before the assignment. Yeah, keep up with reading week by week because the amount of hours you will spend, you will be spending reading your books and articles. It is much less if you keep up week after week rather than leaving uh, all for the last month where, yeah, it's, it, then it's stressful, it's not enjoyable. Attend and do the reading week by week without falling behind. That's my, uh, so it's, a, it's very practical, it's a bit trivial, but that's, that's the thing, yeah. yeah. Why must you call me out like that? Like that was, <laughs> that was me in undergrad. I was like, I sort of attended, sort of did the reading. Uh, <laughs> oh god yeah the the department at northampton had a lot of patience with me uh... <laughs> yeah but you see of course it's individual okay it's an individual thing based on my experience because i did not attend the first two years and i just attended the third really but they i noticed massive improvement in the quality of my experience yeah and of course if people can of course it take... and third suggestion is connected to the first two if you can, stay on campus as much as you can. Mm -hmm. Go to yeah. the canteen, do your sports and attend. There are obviously events organized, you know, a film or there is some kind of anything. Stay on campus as much as you can. It's not a prison. There are ways to enjoy the, the, the campus. Do your running around the campus. You don't have to spend any, any, any penny, really. You can do your walk or because uh, the more you own the lectures, and experience, including the spaces, let's go back to our spaces, the easier, the easier is your learning, okay? Yeah. I think, I, this is my, my experience. Yeah, no, no, I would agree with that as well, because I, uh, when I fixed my act in year two, uh, that was the COVID year, um, oh, that year. helped to just be on the, on, the, on the collaborate, on the Zoom calls all the time. And then when I came into third year, 
It's like, oh yeah, let's let's connect with other people. And then my dissertation supervisor was like, let's do the newsletter. And then from there, uh, that had me working closer with Glenn. And then later, uh, over these past couple of months, also working closer with James, who's obviously your boss. Um, and then James connected me with you. Um, so yeah, just doing that has made these connections happen and mm. made this podcast episode happen. Um, yeah. And sadly, we must close it off with our questionnaire which yeah, I, yeah, we could on. talk we could talk for hours i swear i know, I know. so maybe um yeah. these questions hopefully in the future not maybe hopefully in the future yeah i know definitely definitely uh so these questions come from the prost questionnaire uh which were then later adapted by bernard pivo and then by james lipton and now i present my adaptation mm -hmm. uh to yourself mm -hmm. first question what is your favorite word word yeah, your in, favorite in the word. English language. Any any language. Um, oh wow! Um, <laughs> tree as a tree. Tree. Like albero, yes, tree. Yes, yeah. Yeah. What is your least favorite word? Time. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why is that your least favorite? Because uh, it goes so quickly and it's scaring. Uh, yeah. You know, when when you are 18, 20, 22, 24, you. you when I'm at 30, 34, 40, you start, you know. Ah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I've got 30 around the corner. When will it stop? Uh, <laughs> what engages you? Engages me and um, nature. Nature. Yeah. And what disengages you? And uh, stress in the sense of tight deadlines, pressure, pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I know there's a lot happening in the academic world right now as well yeah um so that's a whole different episode we could we could talk about mm -hmm. what sound or noise do you love and uh well most of pet sounds like the beach boys records a kind of animal like birds chirping and cats purring and dogs barking yeah animals nature sound you know yeah the wind yeah. what sound or noise do you hate oh that's uh, this is the, the one i'm sure about you know motorcycle the very noisy one yeah the... One. Yeah, uh, you're going to hate me. I used to have a moped that made that noise. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I never met you on a moped. So, yeah. uh, this is like yeah. when I was 16, 17, so yeah. way no, back I know back, back in Italy it was almost like compulsive to a very noisy and smelly, stinking moped. Like, you know, the, you put the different stuff in the, in the petrol and the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the question everybody loves, what is your favorite curse word? And you know what? That uh, to me, all uh, English uh, words don't mean anything to me. So I, I'm very liberal to use them. But if there is the C word yeah. that is dreaded here, to me, I just do it like that because it doesn't mean anything. So le let's say that that C word, let's say. Yeah, fair yeah. dues, fair dues. I found it very funny. And it's not offensive because it's not in my, you know, it's not my first language. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would have loved to be a football player first. Yeah. And not skill enough. Musician, not skill enough. And probably because that was my study at the beginning, history and archaeologist. I would have loved it, but it was not. Yeah. Fair dues, fair dues. What profession would you not like to do? You know, my mom, she worked as, or you respect the profession itself, as an accountant. I, I think she was so stressed. It can be a very stressful uh, profession, you know, with all the re regulation that change, all the uh, the VIT changes and the, this this rate and this rate and all the invoices. This kind of accounting job and uh, it's very important. Great that people who do the job because we, we need them, but I could not do it myself. Yeah, I do. Final question: If you could say only one statement to any one person, uh, what would that statement be, and who would that person be? statement one statement to any one person dead or alive something of inspirational and uh, i know it's so bad it's so obvious maybe but it's not exciting but i'm going to say it you can do it yeah to everyone really you can do it to everyone you can do it they are not better than you because i've noticed in this country working with students there is some many many students many many people who are great they have great talent great intelligence great experiences but this always not for me or is for someone else. Or I'm not good enough. Yeah, you can do it. They are no better than you. Yeah, it's it's almost that learned helplessness kicking in, isn't it? That sort of kind of oh no, I can't do it. But yes, you can. Yes, you can. Look at yeah. me. I, I've got a podcast now. 
after I did my yeah. degree. So yeah, exactly, any, exactly. Why why that person should be should have these opportunities and not UI because it's different background or because no, it's not true. Yeah, not true. you are you're yeah yeah. Um, Dr. Faini, thank you for your time. No, thank um, you for your for this great opportunity. I loved it. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic talking to you. Um, is there any um? Where can we find you, sort of online, if people wanted to connect? So I am not, uh, I'm not hot on social media. Let's say, yeah. I think if you Google my name, I have a Facebook page, but it's almost non-active. I am back on Instagram. If you Google my name, and I put nice pictures. I just love Instagram. Otherwise, there is in the University of Northampton, and we have these things called Pure. P-U-R-E, which is a repository archive of, of what we do. So if you Google uh, University of Northampton, Federico Farini, Pure, you will find my work. But that's academic, that's depressing, I know. So probably a bit of Facebook page but, or Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, or, that is. Uh, or come, come, I much prefer come and see me at University of Northampton Waterside Campus. I'm yeah. always open for a coffee for anything. You, of course. Oh, thank you. But, but anyone else, come, come. Uh, I will be there very often in the last, in the next few months. So yeah, that's that's what I prefer. Yeah. Come and see me. If not, yeah. All right, uh, Dr. Farini, thank you so much for your time. You have just listened to an episode of Tom Meets Interesting People. If you'd enjoyed the show and would like to take part, or you know somebody who would make a great guest please email me at tommeetsinterestingpeople at gmail.com and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Guests may provide audio content that helps to demonstrate their work. Guests have given permission for this work to be played through the use of a release form that they have signed. It is the understanding of this podcast that the material that they provide does not infringe on the copyright of others. All other rights reserved. Copyright 2022.